In this episode titled The Venture Towards Sustainable Finance, we have the privilege of hosting Dr. Yasmin Rashid, who currently serves as the Sustainability Director of Land Lease Malaysia and is also the co-founder of national social enterprise and non-profits such as Econite and Poptani Asia, which focus on the implementation of sustainable initiatives in Malaysia. With over 20 years of experience, Dr. Yasmin has made a significant contribution to the ESG development in Malaysia. We will explore how companies and investors can successfully incorporate sustainable changes in business today in the most effective manner. But before we dive into our discussion with Dr. Yasmin, let's take a look at some of the market outlook, key highlights relevant to ESG investing in third quarter 2023 with our colleague Andra. So kick back, chill out and let's get started. Welcome to the Long Game Podcast, where we discuss the latest news and trends in the venture capital markets around the world and in Malaysia. Hi, I'm Andrea and I'm an analyst of Panjana Capital. Today, we'll be talking about the market outlook for ESG investing in 2023, both globally and specifically in Malaysia. The investment landscape is undergoing a significant transformation as more investors recognize the importance of sustainable practices and their impact on the planet and society. The sustainable investing market is experiencing remarkable growth and shows no signs of slowing down. In 2023, one of the primary drivers for companies adopting sustainable investing practices is the growing focus on climate change. The urgency to reduce carbon emission and transition to sustainable practices have resulted in increased investment in sectors such as electric vehicles and renewable energy. Diving deeper into interesting current trends, we continue to see the movement for the ESG carbon credit market rapidly growing despite its young presence. The government has announced several initiatives to support its development, including a 10 million ringgit seed funding incentive and regulatory enhancement to facilitate the transfer of the leap to the ACE market. Currently, potential sources of ESG carbon credits in Malaysia include forestry projects, renewable energy projects, and energy efficiency projects. As the government continues to support the market's development and with awareness of the benefit of ESG investing, increasing among businesses and individuals, the demand for ESG carbon credits is expected to grow. Overall, the market outlook for carbon credits in Malaysia in 2023 is positive, driven by government supports and growing awareness of the benefits of ESG investing. To summarize, the ESG market is witnessing significant growth in 2023 due to factors such as the focus on climate change, the adoption of ESG best practices by companies, regulatory scrutiny, and increasing interest from retail investors. With heightened awareness of ESG issues, regulatory changes, and technological advancement, sustainable investing has become a crucial consideration for investors worldwide. As we move further into the third quarter, the market will see an intensified focus on climate change and the rise of impact investing. Staying informed about these trends and developments will be essential for investors looking to make sustainable investment and contribute to a more sustainable and inclusive future. 
That's all from me and I hope you enjoy the rest of the podcast. Up next, it will be the interview with Dr. Yasmin. Before we jump right into the interview with Dr. Yasmin, here are a few fun facts on ESG. Did you know that ESG investing, socially responsible investing or SRI for short and impact investing are industry terms often used interchangeably but actually have some key differences between them? ESG investing is a broad term that encompasses all types of sustainable investing that consider ESG factors on top of traditional financial analysis techniques. This can include SRI and impact investing but it can also include other types of investing. As for SRI investing, it is a more specific type of sustainable investing that excludes companies from an investment portfolio based on their ESG performance. This can be done by screening companies based on their environmental practices, their social policies or their governance structure. Lastly, impact investing is a type of sustainable investing that seeks to generate both financial returns and social impact. This type of investing typically focuses on companies that are working to solve some of the world's biggest challenges such as climate change, poverty or inequality. ESG investing in particular is expected to grow substantially as more and more investors understand its importance. According to a Bloomberg intelligence analysis, ESG assets may hit $53 trillion by 2025, a third of the projected $140.5 trillion global AUM. This is expected to be mainly contributed by Europe and the US. Welcome back to another episode of the Long Game Podcast. I'm your host, Sharul, and today we're going to explore an interesting trending topic in investing, the topic of sustainability. Sustainability is a complex topic, but it's one that's becoming increasingly important. As the world faces the challenges of climate change, environmental degradation, businesses need to find ways to operate more sustainably in general. Joining us today is our esteemed guest, Dr. Yasmin Rashid, who is a sustainability scientist by profession, environmentalist by passion, with over 20 years of experience and knowledge in sustainability, community development, social entrepreneurship, and social responsibility in Malaysia. Welcome to the podcast, Doctor. Thank you. Thanks for having me. So just a bit of background, Doctor. Uh, Dr. Yasmin has been involved in community mobilization and research-based programs on issues related to sustainability. Dr. Yasmin currently serves as the Sustainability Director for Land Lease and is the founder of Econite, an NGO focusing on working with key stakeholders to drive and empower sustainable actions for a better planet. In this episode, we'll be discussing some of the key factors that businesses need to consider when making sustainable changes. We'll also be talking about some of the benefits of sustainability, both for businesses and the environment. So the first question from, from me to you, Doctor, is sustainability is a key focus for many businesses and entrepreneurs today. As the Director of Sustainabilities for Land Lease Malaysia, could you share some, some of your views on the significance of sustainability to the investment community and how is it able to add value in terms of attracting private investments into an organisation? Over to you, Doctor. Thanks, Cheryl. I feel today sustainability is almost synonymous uh, to 
a lot of the business activities that we do. And it has not just, it's not just a trend. In fact, I think the investment community has taken sustainability um, very seriously. Um, and we all know the reasons why um, due to, you know, the, the climate risk that we are all facing. And it has proven that sustainability does offer certain values as well as positive outcomes uh, to the investment community. So a couple of examples of how this benefits the investment community. I think firstly is it has really changed the way we traditionally look at risk management. Uh, we oftentimes focus on financial risk, economic risk, uh, even political risk. Um, but we all know in the last decade or so, climate risk is um, gradually growing in importance and it's already recognized even in the World Economic Forum. So by incorporating sustainability, it just gives you a better approach to managing your risk. The second aspect on why sustainability has become attractive is because I think from the regulatory perspectives, there's also a lot of initiatives done by either governments or financial institutions to really push the dial uh, for the adoption of sustainability or, or even ESG. And thirdly, I think this one we cannot deny, the public demands that. I think it's a very interesting time right now where social media dominates how information is is, is shared um, and I do feel that the younger generation today those who are graduating are more aware and perhaps study that at the university I, I didn't study that at the university I think what what we're doing now is a lot more advanced to really help the young generation understand it better um, and lastly would probably be more on um, operational savings because sustainability is about enhancing and making processes more efficient. And when things are more efficient, the kickback is actually savings because you actually end up saving a lot more when you operate your building or your business. So that a snapshot are just some of the benefits which I think the investment community are really leveraging on to incorporate sustainability. Okay, thank you. So, um, just a bit more context setting uh, for the next question. Um, the building sector specifically uh, accounts for more than 40% of energy consumption, mm -hmm. generates 40% of all waste and consumes some 16% of water mm -hmm. just for construction activities. So, as the country is gradually implementing ESG on businesses, which also applies to the property industry, which is mm -hmm. huge here, uh, Malaysia has scored impressively in the development of eco-friendly buildings for the Green Building Initiative. To some extent, major developers also recognize this as part of their KPIs in their ESG agenda while adopting greener technology solutions. So what do you think is the key to further progress these um, sustainability efforts, especially in the built industry? Um, I think certifications are always an easy win, you know, because it's external um, and it is, I guess, public information. So that's normally the first tier for for, for the for players in the built industry to comply. Um, and the majority of the developers um, take a, a industry leader's approach. Um, so for us in Landlease, uh, our minimum for every building that we construct is a certified gold. Um, and it is a mandate globally for us. Um, and I think... When you certify a building green, it also signals a lot of strong messages to 
potential investors in terms of the efficiency, in terms of operations. Um, apart from that, we're also it's also very critical to look at sourcing of materials. You know, buildings, materials in buildings come from natural resources. Cement come from limestone caves. And as you're right, we use a huge amount of water. We burn a lot of fuel. So some of the innovations that you see happening at the Exchange TRX is electrification of all our construction machinery. We probably have three or four more machines that we're still waiting to be electrified. And one of the ways where we're accelerating that is working with the supply chain. Um, I think the challenge in Malaysia is not every technology we can afford, not every technology we can access. So I think it, it gives us very high interest to see what is it that we can do to support the supply chain to bring these uh, innovations to our shore. Another aspect of the built environment would be, I guess, three things. You mentioned rightfully energy, water, waste. So the building certification helps with energy. Um, we are exploring um, purchasing green power. I think you're aware that the government is liberalizing the the energy market. Uh, we've, we've just applied. We really hope that we'll get it because it's not just us that is demanding the green power. The tenants that are coming in to fill up the space are already asking us, when are you giving us green power? So... I think the reality is the demand is actually very strong out there. Uh, the challenge now is can we work with the government to really push out that and, and meet the demands of the, the sector? And I think you're probably aware, Sharul, as well, majority of the MNCs and big brands that are in Kuala Lumpur now have a tall mandate, high mandate to be using 100% renewable energy by 2030. That's seven years from now. And everyone's scrambling around to find out, like, how do I get access to that energy and for the price that I can pay? Um, additional to that um, is, is water. So for the exchange TRX, um, uh, we hope we hope we see more districts coming up with this. We've got a centralized district waste waste water management plan. So right underneath uh, the entire district is a concentric rain, uh, ring that collects wastewater from all the buildings, uh, recycles it, treats it, and spits back uh, great air water for us to use for irrigating our park, uh, toilet flushing, and even for um, our cooling towers. So by doing that, uh, we're expecting it to reduce the use of portable water by 50%. And we, we all recognize that we are in a water-stressed environment, although sometimes it just has we have too much water. So these are just some of the examples, Cheryl, that we, we implement and put into practice and motion uh, at the Exchange TRX. Okay, thank you so much. Um, the next question, I think, would be more circled around um, what our certain government agencies have been doing in this space. So first one is obviously Benagara issued the climate change and principle-based taxonomy in 2021, sets out all the requirements for climate risk mm -hmm. management and scenario analysis. Mm -hmm. uh, carbon credits, also known as carbon offsets, are permits that allow the owner to emit a certain amount of CO2 or other greenhouse gases. Um, so one credit permits the emission of one tonne of carbon dioxide. So in this framework, uh, other agencies like Bursa Malaysia has also launched uh, the Bursa Malaysia Carbon Exchange, BCX. Mm -hmm. So this offers a platform for corporates to trade um, these carbon credits. 
uh, or the sale of carbon credits generated from their decarbonizing projects. So this gives a sort of financial incentive as well to, to corporates to adopt ESG-friendly uh, policies. So specific to Land Lease, uh, the Exchange TRX is the la- largest integrated development in Asia. Uh, it is a 60-40 JV between Land Lease and TRX City. So this project is huge, comprises luxury hotels, six residential towers, uh, retail as well. The value of the entire development is exceed, uh, estimated to exceed about 40 billion ringgit. So this is the perfect case study la, of how uh, we want to look at this. So how how is a development like TRX applying decarbonization to its operations? Um, do you think this will set the tone for retail developments um, of the future? Yeah, so thanks for that, Cheryl. That's a fantastic question. I think one of the key things we did before we started building, for for Lendlease at at least, was to really assess uh, the entire district in terms of the kind of climate risk that we will uh, potentially face in the next 20 years, 50 years, 100 years. So I think we are probably the only district here that has taken up that bold move to complete a climate change adaptation and risk analysis. And to the audience that's listening, that report is actually available on our website um, simply because we feel it it should be shared. Um, And the outcome and the findings from that report told us that um, there are four key risks that we will face being in Jalan Tun Razak, extreme heat, urban flood, air pollution, and water scarcity. In traffic jams. No, I'm just joking. True. (laughs) True. Mobility as well. I'll get to that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'll get to that. Good that you mentioned that. (laughs) And knowing these four key risks help us design the space better, help us identify what sort of materials need to be used in order to reduce urban heat island syndrome, for instance. And hence why we have that technology uh, by Violia there as well, because we know how water stressed the city is. We don't want to incur further stress on the city. So whatever we can recycle, we recycle and we use it back ourselves. Um, similarly, energy as well. Everything is energy efficient in terms of the fixtures in the buildings um, and so on and so forth. But one really interesting aspect about that study that really informs us is we can build as green and sustainable as we want. A very big chunk of it is the people. Now, how do you build the resilience, climate resilience of the people? And that's what we're working on right now. Strategies to include all segment of society, um, whether it's through our park, whether it's about promoting mobility, because we do have a very special TRX station that connects. I think it's the station that connects to the most number of destinations, 68 destinations, if I'm not wrong. And it takes you straight to the airport and you can go to major destinations from there as well. So, the aspiration is it is a place where you can work, live and play seamlessly without the need of burning more fuel, without the need of you know driving in and out of that space. So we hope what we have done here becomes a catalyst for other district developers or even just any local developers to look at what it takes to drive sustainability in reality when it comes to building a building. Okay, then um, just... Before uh, we dive deeper, I just want to check on your decarbonization efforts. Uh, you led it, um, obviously. I mean, you're leading it now with Land Lease. Uh, you joined in November 2019, um, but that was before the group started their framework. So you mentioned people as well, building resilience. Can you share some stories? Was it challenging, convincing? 
you know, management and the board and etc. about these these frameworks that they need to adopt. Ah, oh, I think that's why I love Landlease. Uh, I mean, it took me a while to decide. I knew I was going to go into the construction sector. I, I think it was a, my personal challenge to look at what is it that I can transform or change and help with. Um, but with Landlease, the sweet spot is the direction came from the founder in the 60s. Maybe he didn't coin it as what we know as sustainability today or sustainable development. But he had that concept from before. I think his, man, his, his mission was very clear. We're in the built environment. People's safety is important. Everyone must, need, must go home to their family to, you know, daily. And second thing was we need to build responsibly with no impact on the environment. And his vision led us to form our global sustainability framework. And... I think we're one of the few companies where all our board of directors, all our CEOs, if you stop them on the street and you ask them about what is our decarbonization effort, they can tell you our targets, our goals, and where we are and what, where we are not heading. So I feel that that is very important to, while bottom up is always a good approach as well, but top bottom gets things done faster. Mm, great. Okay, so um, can you share a bit on Exchange Direct sustainability features? Um, how did Lendlease uh, Lendlease set these targets? Um, and or the features? How how do you measure your KPIs based based on this? Um, because we have minimum standards, and our minimum standards are a lot related to sustainability. So, for instance, a key feature would be um the building certification. I mean, it's a goal building lead in GBI, which says a lot about how it's designed, the materials, um, you know, airflow, lighting systems. It's an energy efficient building. But secondary to that, it's also about the tenants that come in. So we are a mall that are enforcing 100% green lease to all our tenants. And we're very lucky that our tenants are also supportive of this policy we have, simply because we recognize as a landlord, no matter how well we do for building management and for sustainability, a big chunk of that puzzle depends on our tenants. Um, and we need to move together with our tenants. Um, so the green lease is one way to check to ensure that tenants are actually um, following our guidelines in terms of the lighting fixtures, material, nothing toxic, nothing hazardous, uh, eco-friendly products are being, uh, packaging are being used. Uh, so th that's two two opportunities there that we're doing. The third, which is my favorite, is uh, the crown of the Exchange TRX, which is the 10-acre park. Um, I think traditionally, we would have loved to solar power an entire roof because <laughs> we need green power. But we also recognize a precinct needs that soft touch, needs that green space that connects people. And if you look at the map of the exchange of the, of the precinct, you will see the park is right in the center of everything. It is the connecting point from building A to B, and it also connects to uh, transportation uh, and communities out there. So for us, it was a brown feel. We're really proud that we brought back 23% of green spaces to a place that never had a green space. 180,000 um, tree, trees and shrubs and plantings from 150 local species. So these are just some of the initiatives. I think some of the things that we hope 
everyone will be watching out is how do we then engage with communities and our tenants to look at building the resilience of people. And they're just our neighbours. So we don't even have to look far. I think just around us, we've got Pusat Purumahan Rakyat, a couple of them. And just at the fringe of TRX, uh, we noticed there are also traditional businesses. So what is our contribution to help them grow economically? And I think that's a space to watch out as well as we work together with TRX City to, to develop this. Mm. Okay. Um, so now let's let's project further in the, into the future. Uh, what are your thoughts on the future of green properties um, in Malaysia, in KL? Um, and also if you could mention what adoption rates in other states just give us a bit of color because i think most of the work is is done here in urban centers right so what's the feedback you're getting from rural areas and you know just the, the future prospect of green properties yeah I'll, I'll tackle the rural one first because i think in general rural areas are kind of green already <laughs> unless a big developer come and you know bulldoze everything um but rural living in my opinion is probably in an idealistic uh, state uh, um, I, I, my, you know, my my kampong is Ipoh and Kuala Pila, so I, I think life there has always been a bit more low key and that more sustainable, uh, yeah. Um, but when it comes um, to the city, um, I believe green properties. I, I don't know. It's a tough question. I, I think the demand is there, but whether people want to pay more for a green property, I'm unsure. Uh, I think the expectation is developers should be incorporating green into all buildings already. And you've seen this. I believe some of our competitors uh, that built residential landed properties are now making sure that every unit, every landed property has solar panels, which is sweet. You know, you're actually helping the occupant uh, reduce uh, their energy consumption as well. Um, but I feel... With more young people being aware today and they're going to be potential homeowners, I think that demand will definitely skyrocket in years to come. Um, but I, it depends. It, it, maybe if you're well-to-do, you may not be bothered about savings too much. You may, as, a, as someone who wants a green property, you may want to move to a place where it's a green environment with more trees, more parks, more spaces for children to play. Where else in the city, perhaps you need to think of a green property as an efficient building that also provides you with seamless uh, transportation options and don't need to rely on your own vehicle. So in short, I feel... It will come in due time. And to be honest, property developers also depend on investors, right? So if the investors actually want to invest in these companies and say, dude, there's no two way about it. We're all ESG compliant. We all subscribe to sustainability. There's no two way. So I think developers will have to heed and uh, follow suit. Hmm. And when, when you speak uh, with other developers, do you also get a sense that they are positive with this new boost in demand for green properties? Are they generally worried about extra costing that might be incurred with this? Yeah, that's always the number one thing, you know, and that's my battle on a daily basis. Like, how do you, I, I mean, totally understand every company needs to be profitable. Um, but So where is that sweet spot where sustainability adds value um, despite you know, incurring a, a little bit of a cost. But I feel maybe moving forward that, that there will be some give and take um, in, the, in this area to look at how we can 
um, incorporate it more as a business as usual rather than put sustainability as an item that is uh, the USP of that development. So I, my utopia in this, sec- in this sector um, is when it's not sustainability, it's not a line item anymore in a property developer's business planning. Yeah, it just is. La. It just, just is. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, so it becomes natural. And when it becomes that way, your supply chain wouldn't accept it yeah. as the way it is. Yeah. Yeah. Perhaps also the bigger biggest players also have to sort of set an example, right? And, yeah. and enforce this to yep. their supply chain. Definitely, Cheryl. Okay. Um, you know, what do you think about um ESG frameworks in general? Are they for in Malaysia specifically, are they detailed enough? Are, are we sort of I don't I don't to use this term very loosely, but we've heard things like greenwashing and all this kind of stuff. Just just your personal opinion, casually, are corporates uh, well informed enough with ESG frameworks, or you think it's still it's still in early stages? I think corporates still rely on consultants to help them go through this journey, yeah. um, and it's 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 not wrong. I think it's good to get some help or a cheat sheet and how to pursue this. Um, I think sometimes we overcomplex it. Uh, to me, it's very straightforward, but then I could be biased, right? I see it every day. Um, and there are so many frameworks out there. I, I think the sweet spot is when you know exactly what you're looking for to add value and enhance uh, your company. And ES, the ESG framework has so many components in it for you to pick and choose. And let's be honest, uh, you don't go from zero to hero overnight. You start from a spot, a baseline, and you progress. And that's, if you talk about sustainability, that's how it is. Like. It's a bit slow paced, like slow, slow food, right? But it makes incremental uh, impacts. And these impacts are catalytic, right? Um, and, and it goes in all dimensions. So I think it, over time, uh, like I said, it will be just normal. Um, while, while for me, it's very straightforward, I think there's also a lot of clouded information out there. It's too much information and everyone's saying mine's better than yours. My approach is better than yours. You should use my approach. So I think for corporate need to be very sure of what they want to, to look for before getting, you know, sucked into this 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 vortex of just like not, not even moving anywhere. As far as um, uh, greenwashing is concerned, um, at I think you cannot avoid it. I think certain, certain brands will want to leverage on it. But that's when transparency and accountability and openness is important. Like So for Lendlease, our ESG data book is published on our website. You can download it. It's an Excel sheet. It's, it's very geeky. In a sense, it tells you exactly our emissions, which unit it's coming from, um, what sort of reduction strategies we have in place, how well we're doing. And we feel that we need to be open with this because we, we alone cannot solve it. We need that awareness coming from all the people that we, we work with as well. Now, greenwashing is getting very, very popular because of certain steps certain companies are taking as well. You mentioned carbon credits. For us, we try not to even look at carbon credits because that's already so we have a we have a hierarchy of things that we should do before we do the last thing which is buy credits unless we exhaust ourselves completely 
then we go by credits. And now there's also a lot of, I guess, a dilemma about the validity of credits that are floating around the market. Um, so we, we were very thankful that we didn't use that approach uh, from day one. So if a company doesn't reduce, doesn't do efficiency, doesn't explore on-site solar, but go straight to buying carbon credit, then yeah, that's kind of greenwashing because it doesn't show you're making any effort to change or transform. But if you've exhausted everything, you still end up buying carbon credits, but the carbon credits you buy probably will be a lot, lot less. It's just to top up whatever that you couldn't uh, square off with, right? So that's how I look at it. Um, to blanket that everyone that's doing ESG is greenwashing, I think it's a bit unfair. Uh, you, Unless you're a shareholder of the company, then perhaps you will then have information on what they are actually doing to you know, be more sustainable. Okay, okay. Um, now, just to zoom out a little bit, do you have any advice or specific skill sets uh, for entrepreneurs, perhaps some in the Punjana program as well? Um, what should they be equipped with to achieve and maintain any sustainability goals that they have? Sustainability goals. Never fear rejection. Uh, my magic number is yeah, feel, feel until you you win, uh, and and I and then I'm speaking from personal experience as well. Sometimes people always wants to know more about success stories, but I perhaps have thicker stories of failures and rejections. And I think those are really, really how I, you know, grow myself, um, and not to be to take it too 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 hard. I think rejection should be converted into really positive energy. And entrepreneurs face rejection left, right, top, bottom. And if you're the kind that goes back licking your wound and take a week to see the whole world again, then then that definitely shows you lack the resilience to be an entrepreneur. Entrepreneur needs to just pick up immediately. The second one would probably be knowledge. And I think... Sometimes we get complacent. We think we know it all. We think that the source of information that we rely on is the ultimate source of information. And I think that cuts us off from the reality of the world. So I often go out yeah, with full humility to really understand what other sectors do. Even if I'm not technical, I dabble into the technical world because, you know, there's no this brain is, has so much capacity and knowledge is always something welcome and knowledge gets you far. Mm. especially as an entrepreneur. Okay. So I think these two things are critical. Maybe one more thing. Mm. If you're an introvert like me, <laughs> <laughs> you just need to manage that better. I think uh, in, in general, entrepreneurship is often seen as a very extroverted activity. Um, but I also recognize that a big chunk of entrepreneurs are introverts. Mm. So I can understand psychologically and behaviorally, behaviorally it could be a challenge. Um, but we just need to power on. Yeah, I think, I mean, being an introvert shouldn't be an obstacle to, to achieving success in, in business for sure. Mm -hmm. I mean, now if you just some fun examples like Jeff Bezos and Elon Musk even, <laughs> back when they started, they were not as, you know, all nice and, yeah. you know, very extroverted. Most introverts like will now. have an extrovert friend, like, right? Correct, or a partner, correct, right? Correct. So I'll do the thinking, I'll do the solo <laughs> thinking, you do the execution. Yeah. <laughs> Even Zuckerberg is extremely <laughs> introverted, but okay, great. That's great. Um, just a bit of personal question. Um, what is what what 
gave you this passion to pursue sustainability what what was the spark in your life where you felt this is really what i want to do what what caused you to to take up this mantle that's a tough question cheryl <laughs> i i had an answer for that but then i'm going to change my answer now i think in general uh if something doesn't trigger my passion i won't do it I think that's the number one rule. It must drive my interests uh, and drive me crazy. You know, where I have, I'll think of it nonstop, um, and I'm excited. The first thing that I think of when I wake up, or oh, I want to wake up, and this is the one thing I want to do. Um, but where passion leads me, I leave it to fate. So, was sustainability something I thought of younger? No. I, but plus that wasn't even an option when I was younger, right? Where I knew I loved nature when I was a teenager. Growing up in Ipoh, our weekends were sungai, park, waterfall. It was very common. And my grandmother would make her own laksa. We would bring all of it. It was home-cooked food. So that was norm for me. And, um, you know, gardening and all that. So I, I feel that what led me to study was just my curiosity. So I did marine biology and then I did biotechnology because I thought technology and biology could really help accelerate human needs. And then over time, I realized that I probably have mastered enough of technical knowledge and a big component of sustainability was people. Um, I don't really, I don't know if I'm a people-people person, but I, I, I know I'm empathetic and I'm intuitive um, and I like that engagement. So that actually led me to finish my PhD, which had more of the community science component than the environmental science. And I felt, did, did all these degrees make sense? No, not really. Like I didn't really spe- specialize in anything, but it really made me very multidisciplinary. I, I could... I could say today proudly that I can plug in very easily um, to all areas of sustainability. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I think that drives it. I feel like that power has to be burning inside and whatever that lands on me, once I have that power, I can do so much with it. Mm, that's very inspiring to our <laughs> startup founders. And so interestingly, could have some subconscious influences in from Ipo, you know, going to the waterfall. Ipo Mali. Yeah. So great. It worked out at the end. Um, okay, just a few more questions. Sure. Uh, globally, we have startups that is that are running sustainable initiatives like Brilliant Planet that's trying to tap potential microalgae to help replace fossil fuels. You have insect that uses black soldier fly nice. larvae, larva yeah. to convert Couples. food waste into fertilizer or like nutrition tech that manufactures protein from black soldier fly larva as sustainable alternatives. Um, you know, what do you think about these ideas? Are these really um, game-changing ideas? Is very innovative? Or, you know, ten- sometimes when it comes to trends and it comes in a VC space, a lot of it comes uh, from hype. So we're just trying to, you know, trying to get your sense how real and how amazing these technologies are. <laughs> Actually, I don't know if you want to say it's technology because microalgae has always been producing power. 
Yeah, that shows how much I know about algae. And then black soldier flies have probably been around for a long time and they've always been eating food waste. Right. But the realization that you can incorporate as a solution, it, it's actually very nature, nature-based solutions. But we need people to incorporate it into a technology and of course make it sexy, uh, make it as a business model and all that. And those two examples you mentioned globally also actually... Uh, we have uh, the equivalent version of our startups here uh, as well. Uh, we have insect farmers as well. I can't remember the name of that startup, but I remember buying a lot of salted egg cricket snacks from them. Wow. <laughs> so that was an experience. <laughs> um, um, and they were lawyers turned uh, with a biotechnologist fr- f- a friend who are now manufacturing uh, insect protein food uh, for the pet industry and for human, human like me as well to eat. Um, so they, they already exist. But I think the challenge is um, mass-scale, large-scale adoption and application. That's where investors come yeah, in. The e- commercialization correct. of this. Yeah. So that, that's the part that they may call it trending and all that, but they are sitting on solutions that really need an investment community's eyes and lens to look at where to best apply it and an investment community can really help them scale up so i i feel that these ideas are not not entirely new it's the investment community that perhaps need that bridge to understand how to apply it accordingly Mm. yeah okay um do you have any other alternative uh, possibilities or substitutes for building materials uh, specifically uh, for construction industry lah, that supports the sustainability movement I do um I don't think we will be able to do that here in Malaysia but in Australia we successfully built a, a office block um, entirely out of cross laminated timber and glass uh, and it, uh, actually, we've built a carbon-neutral district in Australia called Barangaroo. It is the only carbon-neutral district that exists in the in the planet right now. How I wish we can eventually be carbon-neutral here at TRX. That's a work in progress. We're, we're, we're aspiring to be net-zero carbon. Um, but these materials exist. But I think there is a, a stigma in Malaysia about using timber for, for bigger buildings. Maybe because of our tropical climate. Maybe because, I don't know, maybe our building management skills, you know, takut fire, you know, maybe uh, managing pests and all that. But in other countries, they welcome the use of these materials. Um, at TRX, We've just recently trial a green cement mix. Nice. More will be coming to you. Um, we are actually currently pouring that green cement mix in one of our buildings. Um, and so we're very, very excited that this will be the first building that will carry that cement. And once that building is completed, I think the decision is moving forward. This green cement mix will be something we will use for all our new projects. And we want to share the cement mix with the industry. Um, because I think people, more people should use it. And I think the industry, the cement industry can be better than us and even innovate greener mixes. So we hope this could be a catalyst to all the other non-built buildings at TRX to utilize this uh, opportunity. Okay. And uh, last standing question, uh, quite fun. Uh, what do you consider a must-read book or a must-listen podcast for those interested in the sustainability movement um, for our startup founders to check out? I don't listen to sustainability podcasts. I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> I will listen to this one. Okay, great. 
Awesome. Um, uh, I love uh, work life with Adam Grant. Nice, yeah, he's yeah. an organizational psychologist. I love it. I love the people that he brings in, and I love how, as a professor and a practitioner, he's so candid. Um, if I ever do a podcast, I want to be exactly like that. Um, I'm currently reading Rick Rubin's uh, The Creative Act, A Way of Being, and drawing all over the book as well. So these are the two things that I'm currently occupied with at the moment. Great. We hope you found this episode informative and thought-provoking. If you have any questions or comments, please reach out to us and we will address it in the next episode. Don't forget to tune in next time as we continue our journey to explore the world of VC, bring you expert insights and in-depth discussions. Thank you again for listening to The Long Game. Until next time, keep playing The Long Game and stay ahead of the game in the world of VC. And obviously, thank you to our esteemed guest, Dr. Yasmin, for joining us. Thanks, Cheryl. Thank you so much. Thank you so much.